Hello, welcome to another episode of As You Explain. Hi. <laughs> I was hoping for you to say something. Oh, okay. You, usually you do the intro. Yeah. Usually you do the intro and then you kind of like say, "Hi, I'm Rovic," and then I go, "Hi, I'm Elliot," and then after that we begin the episode. I was trying to spice it up, but I realized oh, okay, that okay. if I did not give you advance notice, then that's probably my fault. <laughs> oh, hey, that's that's all good, dude. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, nice to be back on on air again. And today we've got a pretty interesting topic. Uh, thanks for tuning in, by the way. I think uh, we've had a lot of fun now that we're coming to the end of uh, the circuit breaker. We'll we've done quite a number of episodes, Rovic. So uh, yeah, and, to and tail things out. Not all of it has been COVID nineteen related, but actually COVID nineteen has given us an opportunity to look at different aspects of being Singaporean with a very unique lens, I would say. Hell yeah. Okay, so uh, today's episode, since, you know, the end of Second Break is coming soon, we're probably going to see more people out in the streets and we're probably going to go out and I- I'm going to be tired of like cooking my own food. So I'm definitely going out to tapau a little bit more now that uh, I actually can step out of my house without feeling a sense of guilt. So today's episode, I was thinking of talking a bit about hawker culture. You, you can't talk about Singapore without talking about hawker culture. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, uh, I remember Netflix came out with a show, was it last year, about street food. And actually, they really did a good job at profiling the hawker culture. Almost any good food show cannot miss out on our hawker culture here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed. And I thought like today we'll we'll look back at the at the history of hawker culture, uh, some of the problems that we faced throughout the years, you know, uh, setting it up, some of the governing bodies. And at the end of the day, I think Rovig and I will share a few of our favorite spots so that uh, our listeners can go and try some of the food. I didn't know what hawker culture was like. I only know how to eat. Like that's, that's me as a Singaporean. But we have a very rich, rich culture and we've built a lot of things uh, around this culture uh, uh, as the years have gone by. So um, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode of SG Explained. Let's go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's look at the history a little bit more first. The origins of hawker culture in Singapore can be traced back to somewhere in the mid-1800s. Now, these are things which have been set by like the National Heritage Board. So I'm also just kind of recounting their narrative. And so in the mid-1800s, when the first street hawkers, um, they would set up these like makeshift stalls. You know, if you see these old pictures uh, in like in the ACM, the Asian Civilization Museum, it's really just like planks of wood and like the stores aren't, don't even have wheels at this point in time. You know, we're not talking about about uh, push carts yet. No, we're just talking about some guy brings like a few planks, a few like buckets, tools, maybe a pot of soup and then, you know, they start the, the little charcoal fire at the bottom. That's that's the opening, right? This is mid-1800s. Back then, the street hawkers, they would t- do this actually for a living. So they would just go by the side of streets such as Old Chinatown and what is now Orchard Road. Those were popular places, you know, that these guys would set up a shop. And it was a popular occupation amongst many early settlers as it required very little capital and minimal skill. If you really want to see what it used to look like in the 1800s, just to go to some of the more developing countries around Southeast Asia. Of course, in general, all the places have progressed a bit, mm-hmm. but you can see a sort of a semblance of what it used to be like. For example, whenever I go to places like Cambodia or more rural parts of Indonesia and, and Thailand, actually, you can see some of these more makeshift stalls. Mm-hmm. And it really a throwback to what it used to 
to be like in Singapore as well. Mm, absolutely. I mean, my wife's from Vietnam and they're, they're pretty much developed as it is. But if you go into less urban parts of Vietnam, like Hoi An, uh, you'll, you'll notice, you know, these stores still exist. So it's very interesting. This was us back in the 1800s. These are just like the early prototypes. So you haven't seen, it's not like a conglomerate, right? It's not a place where everyone knew they could have meals there, but it wasn't an like establishment, establishment. No, this only happened like hawker centers or the concept of it sprang up in most urban areas following the rapid urbanization in the 1950s and 1960s. So a full century later. These were built partly to address the problem of unhygienic food preparation by unlicensed street hawkers. If you really look at a time frame, it is right about the time where we're transitioning into independence, where yeah. we're really becoming an independent country. And they became less ubiquitous because of the growing affluence in the urban populations of Malaysia and Singapore. Specifically in Singapore, you know, you have what was first a hawker stall. So these were, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning, just wooden setups and then yeah it's just super super basic you know yeah and then and then they progress to maybe push cards or mobile stalls and then finally you have what is now between hawker centers and then food courts which are which are like air conditioned Mm -hmm. completely indoors and you're not even looking at using some of the same equipment that hawkers used to use you know now you're using proper stuff tops and actual professional kitchen equipment yeah we, we even um, we even have like those robots taking our trays now man, in the food courts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's so interesting because between 1968 and 1986, the government licensed and resettled these street hawkers from these pushcarts and mobile mm-hmm. stalls into purpose-built hawker centers and markets so that they could have proper sanitation and amenities. Yeah. I think that, that was like a big push, actually. Uh, we spent about two decades, if you think about it, uh, trying to formalize uh, places that you could congregate and, and eat. Um, and, and I mean, if we look at urban development now, uh, as we can explore probably in the future, um, but you'll notice that a lot of these food centers have a strong diversity. But this period, so we talk about the 1968 to 1986, um, this period would represent the most extensive construction of like the hawker centers in Singapore's history. So a lot of uh, money was spent actually to cordon off areas, uh, take a piece of land. Like if you know famous centers like Newton or Lao Pasa, yeah, places like that would be cordoned off and say like, okay, this is now food, food land. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Lao Pasa is one of my favorite hawker centers, even though it's also <laughs> one of the most touristy. Because you're right. a clubber, that's the problem, bro. No, 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 no. That's not why I'm saying it. Well, actually, I've not gone to La Passat after clubbing night out. That's an interesting idea. Why? But okay. I, I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. <laughs> right? La Passat was built in 1824 as a fish market yes. uh, on the waterfront. So this is really near the Marina Bay area. Mm-hmm. And it was serving the people of early colonial Singapore. It was rebuilt in 1838 and then finally relocated and rebuilt at its current location in Talokaya area, right? Yeah, that's right. And why I love it is it is beautiful to look at. It is huge, but actually it has a Victorian-style architecture. It has this uh, clock on the top, and it's just so amazing to look at. But So whenever I bring people to Singapore, 
I always show them, you know, your regular hawker centers that you can find in any part of Singapore. But I, I bring them to La Passat and I say, to me, this is the mother hawker center. Yeah, this is yeah. it's beautiful. Agreed, agreed. I, I actually adore La Passat for its for its exterior, and it's also right in the center of CBD. That's that to me is one of the coolest things, right? This is a as commercial as commercial gets, but still the aesthetics of it kind of stand out amongst all these like tall buildings. So, uh, wonderful place, uh, even at a night out. We we cordon all these areas. We built a lot of uh, a lot of hawker centers in housing estates, industrial areas, and till this very day, I, my number might be off, but. Um, I think there are 114 hawker centers island-wide at the moment, if I'm not mistaken. That actually doesn't sound too high. I was expecting a lot more. Well, I mean, we're talking about traditional hawker centers. No, I'm not counting in stuff like your kopitiama, your your banquets, all these food courts. Now, they've, they're classified under a whole different scheme. Uh, we're talking about like your open-air hawker centers that still exist in like marketplaces. According to URA, I think we're going to have about 123 in total by 2027. Wow. So the takeaway point from this is we're still investing in hawker culture. It's not dying. The government sees it as a, okay, we got we to gotta build. People need these uh, accessible food locations. Let's go ahead and build them up. Okay, so that's like the history, right? The history of, of how we landed up today. What's interesting to note is that when you think about hawker food, Right, so let's let's just name some of the dishes. There's chakwe tiao, which oh, yeah. is this chard fried noodles. There is uh, hokkien mee, which is this beautiful broth rich noodles. And it's also yeah. fried noodles too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot well, of, a fried lot of noodles. <laughs> there's a lot of noodle dishes. There are <laughs> clay pot rice. Uh, I know this for a fact because my grandmother used to run uh, clay pot rice stores uh, in Singapore. So clay pot rice used to be something which is very hard to prepare and it was not available a lot like commercially. You would usually find it in places like restaurants. But thankfully, because of hawker culture, the fact that, you know, rental for stores actually were getting... People saw it as a way to change your restaurant experience into something a bit more accessible. I think people started experimenting and they were like, okay, maybe if I prepared a big clay pot, I could like uh, try to sell it at more economical pricing as well. And that's what exactly what my grandmother did. It was, it was very cool. Yeah, it was an evolution. That's yeah. super interesting to know because the point I was trying to make was that a lot of these food were targeted at people who were laborers. Yes, right? So we were looking at people who are going for a long day of work, very labor intensive, and they just need to bulk up on their carbs, bulk up on their nutrition. And so this hawker food, while it's very commonplace today, actually was designed to be very caloric and very, very intense in its flavors to be able to give laborers a really good meal to go out and do their hard day work. But as a result of it, it was targeted at people who could not afford air conditioning, who could not afford maybe hygienic environments. And so as a result of it, the places that the hawkers were at had a reputation for being unhygienic. To be very fair as well, these people, the operators, they didn't have the experience of running something which was going to be regulated, right? Before this, it was all pretty much roguelike. You were on the streets and you're like, this is my store, you eat. If you get sick, hey, sorry, man, no one, you, you can't come and find me. La. And because these makeshift stalls, back in the day, you know, you didn't have like proper running water. So cleaning was always an issue. Uh, so when you, when you move into the hawker centers, it's in a way culture shock 
yeah. Yeah, you're going to have to learn how to really be responsible for your, your exactly. space. Yes. So, um, but, you know, thankfully, uh, we started implementing a lot more systems to help with this. So more recently, you'll see that hygiene standards have improved uh, with pressures from local authorities. So how did they do this? Well, they implemented stuff like licensing requirements. They plastered this ABC sometimes on the on the stalls. Yeah, that, that was it. They were like, we're going to grade you. And Singaporeans, you know, one thing we're afraid of, right, is bad grades. Very, <laughs> very important. Uh, so this was like a, a grading system to provide like the standard of hygiene that is required for a store to operate and rewarding exceptionally good hygiene. So if any of you guys have ever wondered what that standard is like, well, here you go. A score of 85% or higher based on their metric will result in an A. So that means they are, this is, it's not a percentile thing. It's basically you just check off a bunch of requirements. And if you met 85% of it, you get an A. The lowest grade, however, is a D. And a D uh, is, isn't fantastic. Okay? It's like it ranges from 40 to 49% of passing standards. So just like in JC all over again, uh, a D feels like a fail and you should you kind of see it as a fail. These grades were required to be displayed on the hawker stands. So if you are not living in Singapore, if you are listening as someone who's from overseas, actually what Elliot just shared is a very unique part of the hawker experience where you will go around to different hawkers and you'll see a multitude of things pasted on their windows. <laughs> uh, one of which has to be, this is a mandatory requirement, is this hygiene certificate. Yes. Right? And uh, as Elia mentioned, you would want that A sign there to show that you're that you're having good hygiene. But Elliot, actually what I found interesting is that I know some Singaporeans who actually purposely look for those that are B or C because they say, you know, these people fo probably focus on the food <laughs> a lot more than the hygiene, right? There's more flavor because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it necessarily stands true. I know, you know, you were, you were talking about Vietnam before. I know yeah. there's a place in Vietnam that has not washed its uh, its giant pot of uh, beef broth or its fur since yeah. it started, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. What, would, what hygiene rating would you get for that? But actually, that be but that bowl of beef broth is probably delicious. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, there is a saying in my household is that if it was made with blood, sweat, and tears, you'll taste it. Uh, and... <laughs> And that's what happens when you get a B. That's where the blood comes from, dude. Right. Yeah. So, so um, it's, it's so interesting from that angle because it's it's counterintuitive, right? As a Singaporean who is excellent seeking, do you mm -hmm. go for the hygiene excellence or do you actually go for flavor excellence and yeah, sacrifice I'm, I'm, I'm your hygiene a, grade? I'm a, I'm a go of the hygiene, man. I mean, B is still very good. Let's be very fair. Yeah, as long as you don't get a D, I'm probably okay with eating at the store. Let's, if, if, you're, if you're listening overseas, don't be afraid of A, B, and C. It's like, it's, as far as we're concerned, they all taste great. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just a cleanliness thing. Yeah. This this passing grade thing wasn't the only thing, you know. It wasn't just for for show and wasn't just for like um like members of public to see. Uh, in 1987, there was a point demerit system that was introduced to account for this like a hawker stores uh food and personal handling hygiene. So these demerit points actually yield things like fines. For example, uh, six demerit points yielded a 400, and this is a US $400 fee, uh, and individual fines would be solicited for larger violations, such as putting unclean materials in f contact with the food, failure to display the, the license, for example, will also issue fines, uh, and that's about US $200. Wow. It is very costly to run a hawker center and mm. maintain the standards that, that yes. need to be maintained. But once you do get 
everything set up actually then you can really just focus on execution mm. of your of your food uh, recently i think mothership has been posting a couple of articles about people our age and younger so um who have reopened their parents food establishments in hawker centers there has been a resurgence of young hawkers who have opened their own hawker stores opening a hawker store is actually much it, it's much cheaper than opening a hipster cafe. You know, rental is very it's a very different cost. These fines that you could possibly get for not practicing good hygiene within a store, it's actually there as more of a detriment. Right? It's 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 heavy because it becomes a higher cost than actually running the store itself. So I I've, think it's, I, it's it's a safety precaution. I've heard a couple of names for these younger up-and-coming hawker personalities, right? I've heard the term next-gen hawkers. I've heard the term... So this is a term that I'm not really a big fan of, hawkerpreneurs, because if... (laughs) Wait, who who the hell says hawkerpreneurs, dude? If you you Google it, you'll find it. Okay, okay. The reason reason why I don't like it is because it, it tends to indicate that it is only these young, up and coming personalities that are the hawkerpreneurs that are entrepreneurial with their hawker. But actually, if you think about it, from the very history that we were talking about, these people who started off with just putting a couple of dishes together and selling it on the street, they were entrepreneurs in their own rights. So the whole hawker heritage speaks to hawkerpreneurship, in fact. Mm, very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. That's like the current setting, but there hasn't been big scares. I mean, back in the 90s, yeah, you know, there were things about like rat infestations and whatnot, like bugs and uh, people getting sick, you know, food poisoning. Aside from that, hawker centers have been generally very safe. I don't think we've had much issues in the past decade even. One of the things that definitely led to that was the ownership structure of Mm -hmm. the hawkers, right? And a big part of that is because of the very heavy involvement of the government sector, of the public sector, and ensuring that hawkers were taken care of, but also complied with certain regulations. So the hawker centers in Singapore are owned by three government bodies, namely the National Environment Agency, so that's the NEA. That's under the parent Ministry of the Environment and Water Resources, so MUIR. There's also the Housing and Development Board, so HDB, and JTC Corporation. And and the way to think about it is that HDB would take care of anything residential. residential. You have JTC that takes care of anything in industrial parks. And then finally, NEA takes care of almost everything else, including your major markets and hawker centers that exist. So all the centers owned by HDB and NEA in turn are regulated by NEA with the individual town councils managing the HDB-owned center. So there are, there are different bodies involved. There's ownership, there's regulation, and then there's management. And then JDC-owned centers are completely self-managed. So because of the, the niche focus on the hawker centers and industrial parks, they kind of have their own model over there. Mm-hmm. But overall, it allows the government to directly intervene when it feels necessary. Yes. So uh, just mention some of like the hawker centers uh, that are very prominent in Singapore like these guys uh, how we've used the hawker centers at least for like our own profiling uh, you know to kind of like bolster our image we've seen um, places like Newton Food Centre so very famous Newton Food Centre a scene was filmed from Crazy Rich Asians everyone remembers that movie in Newton Food Centre and then Maxwell as well uh, we've had like the Bib Gourmand Awards uh, for Tian Tian Hainan Zifan you know like that that one that one particular place has a lot of history behind it and uh, this this is actually really good you need to get permits basically if you want to film in these places anyway so you got to go up to one of these like government bodies and say hey 
can can film or cannot film. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the time they'll say yes, right? They, they, they definitely want to, as we'll talk a bit about heritage in a bit, we really want to shine a spotlight on these places. So just now, you know, we were mentioning about like how we want to have like 123 different uh, hawker centers, right? By 2027. Mm-hmm. So when we announced it in 2011 that we wanted to have like 10 more hawker centers, you, that meant we were going to create about 600 more stalls. So think about that. that that's the number, right? 10 stalls, uh, 10 hawker centers equates to about 600 stores. If we have 114 hawker centers on average, right, how many stores do we have? That's a lot. It's a, yeah, lot, it's a lot of stores. Yeah. yeah. So this, just to put things in perspective for us, the amount of regulation and the the size and scalability of our food culture and hawker culture here in Singapore is massive. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And one thing it does, uh, because of the sheer economies of scale, is um, going back to the earlier principle of keeping food prices and reduce the rent of hawkers over time, right? We want to keep things economical. That's always been one of the game plans of having hawker culture. You don't have to, like if, when we go overseas, Rolf, when you go to like um, like Australia or even like the US, how hard is it to find a cheap meal on the streets? That's not fast food, not fast food. Extremely hard because there's so much that goes into service costs. Yeah. There are so much into going into property costs. Yeah, exactly. Very hard. Very high. Eating in Australia, when I, when I was uh, living there for a bit, it was nuts. To eat a plate of noodles, I would pay maybe about ten to twelve dollars. That's like, that's like minimum, right? That's on the cheap end, yeah. Yeah, that's on the cheap end, you know. But we're talking in Singapore. When you eat a plate of, let's say, Hokkien mee, it can go to about three dollars to three fifty for a small. I've seen two fifty. Yeah, yeah, you see? And there's always someone out there who's way cheaper. Uh, famous, famous economic rice, Hap Lee, right? Back when I was in a, in a schoolboy, it was $2 for like basic nasi lemak. That's, that, that blew my mind. And because of the sheer number of stalls that we have in Singapore, it's really kept prices competitive. Even throughout inflation, even throughout the years of economic turmoil, like right now, I still can get food out there that is worth my dollar every single time. This is a very interesting area of analysis for me because I appreciate what you're saying about having many stalls out there putting a cost pressure down. But then at the same time, we also talked about the fact that it does cost a good amount to set things up. Right. So you have compliance costs with setting up all your safety measures and hygiene measures. You have ingredient costs, which is not going to be cheap. You have your own manpower costs, right? Because a lot of hawker stalls, yes, it is owner run, meaning that the person who owns the stall may be the one who actually operates it. But at the same time, you also need assistance. You need all your packaging, cleaning and all this kind of stuff. You Mm -hmm. can hire people. But then if you're making if you're only selling each plate of rice for three dollars to four dollars, how many plates of rice are you gonna need to sell a day <laughs> yes. in order to make that money back? Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of math that goes along into into doing this, and I'm definitely not the expert, but I also know that's quite lucrative. I've heard some stories of very successful hawkers who've made a fortune, made a killing out of uh, out of their trade. So it is a game of scale. It's right? a game of scale. Yeah. If you can figure out how to make each dish with the same ingredients and with quick precision and then just make many of it. As long as that dish is good, you are going to be able to earn on your margin pretty well. Now, what's really difficult about this is that as our population in Singapore becomes more affluent, there is this division between people who want more customization 
mm-hmm. right? According to their diets. And then you have people who who only want the best of something. So for example, if I just want chicken rice, I would go and look for the best chicken rice out there. Now, if you are a B or C tier chicken rice stall, am I going to go to you versus going to an A tier chicken rice stall? Right? So it's your A tier chicken rice stall that's going to keep earning on your margin and your B and C tier chicken rice, they're going to have to find a way to still maintain their profitability over time. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, but on the on the point of customization, I, the reason why I raised this is because I had a very interesting experience a couple of years ago. I was eavesdropping. I'll be completely honest, this is my bad. But I was eavesdropping on these generally Western, white Caucasian exchange students who were in Singapore. And they were out talking. And one of them actually mentioned, I went to an Ocasol and I asked the person if there were vegan options. And the person just told me <laughs> she can't do anything because that's the ingredient that you had. And yeah. I was just like mind blown because to some extent I can sympathize that <laughs> as a vegan, it's very hard to get food in, yeah. in a hawker center. But at the same time, it's not fair to expect a hawker center who earns only on the margin, and that's a small margin, yeah. to customize for you, because that would just disrupt their flow altogether. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's not that's not what the hawker centers are built for. In in my eyes, it's a very um, ingrained system already as is, right? Uh, they give you four options. Uh, you want latiao or no latiao, black sauce or no black sauce, that kind, you know? What like, is latiao just for our non yeah, audience? That's all, oh, uh, chili sauce, chili sauce, that's right. But yeah. they, that's what they'll say. They'll say, hey, niao latiao ma, which means, do you want do you want chili sauce, and then you'll be like yes or no, and that's all the customization you get, and maybe size lah. Yeah, yeah, that's all, that's about it. Um, it's a very fast transaction, and one that's one thing I love about hawker food. It's really like it's like fast food, but faster sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it could be. Yeah, I want to just point out one last thing before we move into the heritage, which is the idea of excellence. Uh, within the hawker centers. Uh, as of 2016, we had, um, and, and this is all I could dig up so far, uh, we know that there are two Singaporean food stands, both of them still located in hawker centers, uh, but they became the first street vendors to be awarded a Michelin star for excellence eating. Uh, first one was the Hong Kong soya sauce chicken rice, which is very, very famous. I think they have a few outlets now. And the Hill Street Taihua pork noodle. So the Hong Kong soya sauce chicken rice, this is Hawker Chan. Hawker Chan, that's right. Yeah, he's still in the Chinatown market. Kid, yes. Uh, with the original stall, but yeah. he has franchises everywhere, including in Melbourne. <laughs> right, I, right. Yeah, I was very surprised because I was in Melbourne recently and I saw Hawker Chan and I was like, wow, that's mad. This stall has lost its Michelin star. Uh, it's currently just a Bib Goman. And actually, a number of Hawker stalls in Singapore now have the Bib Goman, including Briyani stalls, including just stalls across Chinese, Malay, and Indian food. Very in general. As with a lot of places globally, there is gentrification, which is where more affluent communities move in and you know certain things that used to be rustic and part of the culture get taken over. Uh, in this case with hawker centers, actually what's happening is that they're getting a facelift to reach out to younger Singaporeans. And that means bringing in more interesting ingredients. So you have Japanese influences, you have Western influences, and they're really mixing it. A good example is in Amoy Food Center. There's this great style called a noodle story. And a noodle story takes your classic mincemeat noodle and it takes a huge twist on it. It adds like this really interesting prawn fritter. Uh, it's, it's a mix between your mincemeat noodle and your ramen. And that actually won a big goman as well in, wow. in, in the Michelin Guide. And so these are examples of young 
people who are inheriting the hawker culture and making it their own. A lot of these hawker centers earlier that you were mentioning that were getting built, they are actually targeting in large part these up-and-coming hawkers because for them it's not just about creating more food options but really creating spaces for people to hone their craft and to become hawkers in their own right. A really good example is the one in Pasiris. Uh, so Pasiris food center has this very interesting dynamic. The first floor is completely uh, traditional hawker food, which are great in their own right. But the second floor is this whole area that is just dedicated to these young hawkerpreneurs. And there are really interesting dishes. There's this amazing prawn noodle that's in this Pasiris hawker center. I can't remember the name, but their prawn noodle is the bomb. <laughs> and this prawn noodle uh, they does e-payments, it has social media marketing, it has TV screens showing their food being tried out by influencers and celebrities. And this is a very different style of hawker center compared to what would people think with La Passat or your mm-hmm. Maxwell Food Center. These are much more modern and much more decked out for the younger crowd. Very interesting. I, I actually have not seen these yet. I, I should get around once I can step outside of my house. Absolutely. And this part of the fun in Singapore to go hawker hunting. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I I've done that a few times with uh don't tell my wife, my ex girlfriend. But it was really really fun. Like back in the day when I would you know traverse from place to place, and then we would uh kind of explore like the food options. One one mm-hmm. way that uh, we used to do it was we would actually um see like lunchtime where the queue was at, and you know we weren't we weren't like working at that point in time, so uh we could queue like these people who were queuing they had they had lunch hour that was about it, but we had all the time in the world, so even I had to wait like forty five minutes, I would just stand there taste the food and then we'll give it a rating so. <laughs> It was worth it. It was, it was a good time. Good time. So what's interesting is that there are many people who are big advocates for hawker culture. Yes. So one of my favorite is KF Sito. K- yeah. KF Sito is a heavyweight in the hawker scene. He actually uh, ran this food blog and show called Makan Sutra, which is really just this Bible on, on the whole hawker craft, right? What does it take to actually do dishes like your clay pot rice or your chakwe tiao? And to really look at the, the art that went into making some of these dishes, making sure that these are documented and memorialized for generations in the future. And he's actually been advocating on a big part on new operating models, because whether we like it or not, uh, with some of these trends, there are also changes in expectations and changes in what people pay for these hawker places. Oh yeah, right? there, there are also, there are like, I, I know he has some of these upmarket hawker areas as well, right? Like Glutton's Bay, those are considered uh, hawker centers. Yes, so Glutton's by the Bay was a very interesting project because for him, it was a collaboration with the Esplanade to really bring some of the best hawkers in Singapore into just one space on the Bay. But at the same time, he kept it very, very authentic to the core values of hawker culture. Well, I mean, with that being said, you know, we, we've talked a lot about like celebrating like the culture and how much we've invested into it. Um, you'd expect that, you know, since it's such a core part of identity that we would have done this sooner, but it was only... Uh, last year, 27th March 2019, that we submitted a nomination to inscribe hawker culture on the UNESCO representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Wow. That was last year, 27th March 2019. So, Did we win it? I don't think so. We still love and celebrate hawker culture, whether or not it's on the UNESCO list <laughs> or otherwise. <laughs> 
That I am 100% sure. So now that we're going through this really tough time, I uh, just want you know, just to liven things up a little bit. Uh, I know that the hawker culture has been hit quite heavily during this uh, COVID-19 you know, pandemic and also with the fact that they can't just operate. Like we've, we've actually made sure that we can't even eat at hawker centres. Taking away is perfectly fine, but eating there, we've had people enforce the rule that you can't um, no longer sit in that shared space. Uh, and the government has actually been really, really helpful. On the 3rd of April, uh, first they announced that, you know, we could no longer eat at the hawker centre to reduce the community spread of the virus, obviously. Uh, but this was also, you know, there was also a good response to it because the government was going to help these people. Most of them, it's their only livelihood. So as an effort to help them, uh, one of the stimulus packages actually um, granted them rental waivers of for three months with a minimum of $200 per month. So no matter what it is, that they would get some level of support uh, to carry on after the pandemic is over. It's important that we try to protect these places as much as possible because yeah. not only is the overall F&B culture getting hit, but especially with hawker centers, again, where the margins are what these people survive on, we need to be able to ensure sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Support local businesses. I mean, this is, you know, when we say support local businesses, I really do think that this is one of the places in which we can do it uh, without digging too deep into our own pockets. Like, we're all hurting. That's that's for sure. But doing our part for this community, for the hawker community at least, ensures some sort of stability amidst, like, a really troubling time. I have a bunch of recommendations that I'd like to give you guys. Um, but for, for brevity's sake... <laughs> We're going to stick to three for Rovig and three for me. How's that? Yeah, I mean, even when my <laughs> friends come to visit me in Singapore, rather than to go through my list, because there are just so many options. I yeah, will, there's just so many options. I will direct them to a blog post like a Seth Louis or, you know, Daniel Food Diary blog post. I'll be like, here's a good list of all the hawker foods in Singapore, yeah. but here's my top three. So I'll give you the same top three I give all my friends. So this is, this is a very rare... Chancy here. Oh man, it's the glimpse. It's, <laughs> it's the, glimpse. the glimpse. Yeah, it's the glimpse. I love it. Okay, hit us, okay. hit us. So my first is actually a very underrated stall that is still well known in the Clementi area, but it's underrated in the rest of Singapore. It's the Clementi Market carrot cake stall, and this mm-hmm. is this is a very iconic stall. It used to be run by this elderly. A fellow who actually wore one of those the straw hats. He would be making the carrot cake. It's currently inherited by his son. But oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's multi generational, right? But what's really cool about it is that this carrot cake is not like regular carrot cakes where it comes as like those uh, rectangular cubes. Instead, these carrot cakes are just like smashed together, and it's just this rich delicious, eggy, oh, it's crispy, oh, it's so good. And what's really tricky about this is that it closes at 10 a.m. every morning. It opens at like 8, and people are lining up, and by 10, he's done. (laughs) So every day, you have to come and stand in this long line uh, and he and what's interesting is for them it's done <laughs> at 10 a.m. they're done for the day. They don't have to sell anymore. They've met their quota, and they just go home and, and enjoy their life, which really speaks to how great this uh, carrot cake is. Uh, wow. Okay. Okay. I have to try. I, I hardly go to Clementi, so like this is actually good. The next one is is all the way in the east, oh, and this okay. one I think you would know as well, Elliot. It is actually the Changi Village Food Centers 
Nasila Max. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that's one of the best. One of the yeah. best. <laughs> I can't remember. There's a thing about these things, right? You don't remember their names. You just remember where they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is the Changi Village Nasila Mark store, which is Nasila Mark for people who don't, who are not Singaporean. It just means uh, fat rice, but also it refers to coconut rice. And it's it's this fragrant rice. This place, why I love it is because their chicken is so well deep fried. Yeah, it's delicious. Yep, right. Their chili sambal is is fresh. It's fragrant, and it's just such a really really good dish. It's very hearty, and it's a good brunch meal. I what I normally do is I pair up either going to Pulau Ubin, which is you know the island that's where you can go cycling and biking. I normally do it either before or after, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a great great meal my third recommendation is actually one of these young hawkerpreneurs that we were talking about and it just speaks again to how young people are really redefining the hawker scene this is a burger place i love my burgers but a hawker burger is something else it's cheap it's affordable it's only under six dollars sometimes can be up to eight dollars but it's really affordable this is hammy's which is in commonwealth crescent market and food center it has actually normally very long lines the trick is to go in the non-peak hours because they are still open and they still serve their dishes but hammy's is a really delicious burger place on the cheap that is in a hawker center it's amazing highly recommend wow okay i i need i need to check that for sure for sure my, my list is a little bit more traditional in the sense that I think you've given such a nice spread, dude. Like, I hard for me to fight. But the Nasilamak store at the Changi Village Hawker Center, right? So, um, mm-hmm. there are actually two stores there that I really like very much. Uh, both of them are very deep fried ones. Uh, deep fried chicken. So, I'm not too sure which exactly. And they both have really good chili as well. So, it was hard for me to like... Do both. Do both. <laughs> so, I'm going to tell you the names of these places and then you can go and figure it out for yourselves, okay, dear listeners. Uh, the first one is called Mizzy Corner. So, Mizzy Corner Nasilamak. And then the other one is the International Muslim Food Stall Nasi Lemak. So that's the... They both have very similar tastes, I suppose. Um, but one thing that is different about them is actually the, the egg consistency. So if you like more runny eggs, I would say like Mizzy Corner has like much runnier eggs. And then the International Muslim Food Stall is like the, the egg yolk has been cooked very well. So you can go and try it out for yourselves and let me know which one you prefer. I just Googled it. Mizzy Corner is... The place I was talking about. Yeah. Then and it's super, it's super affordable because I, I'm looking at the menu online. Yeah. And a simple meal with the chicken I was talking about. Yeah. $3.50. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so now my top three places that I usually bring people and to be very fair, they are mostly um, locations that offer a lot more food as well. But I'm going to tell you my go-to dish at these places. So I always start with number one. So number one is actually a Lagoon Food Center. Uh, Lagoon food village and that's all the way in east coast park okay so it's this huge hawker center and it has things from samba stingray uh, it has like satay and all grilled like really nicely on proper charcoal okay so none of the like inside the stores you can see it outside being cooked for you so the one store that i like there though which is some people have said it's very underrated and i agree it's this place called chokki duck rice okay so Duck rice is something of like the cousin of chicken rice in Singapore. At least that's the way I like to see it. You should try this place. Okay, This place has very tender duck, 
The sauce is phenomenal. It's like this very nice sweet duck sauce. The uncle is super nice. I've gone to him since I was like five or six years old and he always give me extra meat. So, I mean, you can't, you can't give him my promo code or whatever, but you know, you go there and yeah. just patronize him. He's, he's really, really nice. Number two is uh, also very famous. But a place that I still go to very often. It's called Kok Ki Wantan Noodles. And this one is in a hawker store that hasn't been upgraded in quite a while. So it's kept its old aesthetic. This is the one at uh, Lavender at Forge Road. So if you guys want to go have this famous Wantan Noodles, noodles very springy. It's like all the all the best people like KFC to have all been here. Okay, so and actually I learned it from KFC to if I'm not mistaken. Like Kok Ki Wantan Noodles, man. This place, legit. It's a chili sauce. Okay, take a lot of chili and you just whip it together. That's my recommendation. Nice. The last one that I was going to share with you guys. Okay, so this one is a bit contentious. It's a bit contentious, not because it's uh, any less of a hawker store, but because of its origins. So uh, I've been recommending this place for a little while now, only because people always tell me like they want to eat Ting Tai Fung. Okay. Um, and Ting Tai Fung, I love the place, but it's darn expensive. One thing that happened a couple of years ago was that one of the hit chefs here uh, from Ting Tai Fung in Singapore, he actually opened his own hawker store serving uh, very similar tasting pork ribs fried rice. And wow. it's, yeah, pork ribs fried rice. So it has the, it has this very similar, like the fried rice is so nice. It has that fluffiness that you would associate with Ting Tai Fung. Like there, he's really good. It's called Hao Lai Ke and it's, um, it's right at Badok Food Market. If you don't know where it is, you can always hit me up on Instagram. I will gladly explain to you how to get there. We will put the names of these food places in the show notes. Yeah. So don't worry. We'll give you all the deets. Yeah. So but, yeah. Uh, this, this was a really fun episode. We definitely laid the foundation for a lot more episodes on these specific dishes. We've already mm-hmm. done one dish on laksa, but we've done one dish of chicken rice. I would love to do more dishes on like nasi lemak, on oh, carrot right. cake, yeah. and all of this other stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I think it's important to understand the foundation, which is hawker culture in general. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you guys have any ideas that you want us to go and review, like if you want us to really go deep dive into a particular dish, feel free to hit us up on all our socials. Let us know uh, what it is you guys want um, a very deep explanation of. And I'm sure if we have the time, we'll definitely do it. Yeah. Oh, well, that was uh, that was a good time. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Best of luck with going into phase one of Post Circuit Breaker.